All right, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the nice, cool weather. We thank you for uh, just the opportunity and, bi- and ability to come together to worship you, to be in fellowship. But Lord, we also pray that you would speak to us. Your Holy Spirit would teach us, speak into our lives, Lord. And we ask for your blessing over our time and your word. May you lead us and teach us, Lord. And we give this time to you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Uh, Before we get looking into the passage, uh, how many of you remember the TV guide? Guys, remember the TV guide? Uh, Again, this segment of the, the room has no idea what the TV guide is. Some of you know what the TV guide is. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up as a kid... I had like two things I consistently read. All right, wait. Hold on. I got to clarify that when I say consistently read. I would love to say I consistently read the Bible, but I can't say those as consistent. So I got to not lie here. But I had the Bible, <laughs> and I consistently read the TV guide. Now you think, that's kind of weird. And I say, I agree. But I loved the TV Guide for some reason. If you all don't know what the TV Guide is, every week it was a little book that you can buy in the newsstands, grocery store, whatever, and it would tell you everything that was on TV for the whole week. Every channel. And some of you are like, what's the big deal with that? (laughs) Look, back then, you know, when you turn on your TV, Yes, satellite cable, it shows you a guide, right? But it only shows you however many hours, right? You have to search for a certain program and then see what schedule. This little thing told you the whole week, every day, 24 hours a day. And I was like, I don't know why, I don't know how I got glued to it, but I would want to buy the TV guide every week. I asked for like 50 cents or since whatever it was, each week, so I can get the TV guide as a kid. I memorized it. I knew what time every show came on. Even if it wasn't a show that I would watch, I could tell you what soap operas were coming on during the day, what channels. I could tell you what's on Channel 7 at 8 o'clock at night on Tuesdays. I can't anymore, but... I don't know why, but I was glued to the TV guide. I even did the crossword puzzles each week, right? And I knew about half of whatever it was, but for whatever reason, I loved the TV guide because it told me everything that was going to happen during the week. I don't know why that was such a big deal to me, but it was, right? How many of us would wish we had a TV guide that would let us know everything that was going to happen and when it was going to happen. Would we want to get it and to say what was going to happen? I know last week I asked a similar question, right? Last week I asked you, if you can know when you would die and how you would die, would you want to know, right? And then when I asked that question, I got some pretty sudden responses. I don't know if that made you think about it at all this week. How many of you thought about it at all after Sunday? Nobody. Okay. 
But if you, if you would know, if you could know, and when, would you want to know, right? Same thing, like if we had a guide that would tell us everything that was going to happen, and when it was going to happen, would you want to know? How would it affect? Some people said definitely not. Would it affect how you approached life, how you lived your life, if you could know everything that was going to happen and when it was going to happen? There's no right or wrong answer to that, and you can kind of think about that, right? But we can certainly understand that we may respond differently or live differently or make certain choices differently if we knew what was going to happen next and when it was going to happen. That's what I did as a kid. I shaped my whole schedule around the TV guide. After I get home from school, I knew exactly what was going to be on TV, what cartoons I was going to watch, what shows I was going to watch. This is when I could do my homework because I'm not into this show and all that kind of stuff, right? But in our minds, we often may think about how we would respond if we knew something was going to take place and when. Last week, I introduced Mark chapter 13, and I gave a little bit of a spoiler alert, meaning what is going to happen at the end of our story, end of time, right, or end of the world as we know it. And if you think about the scenario of the end of the world or the end times as we know it, I'm sure if you left to our imagination, we can think of all sorts of ways in how the end of the world could take place. Some people think of cataclysmic natural disasters. How many of you saw a movie this week based on natural cataclysmic disasters? No one. I was hoping that it would inspire you last week. When we got home and we were trying to figure out something to watch, we looked for some kind of good natural disaster movie that we could watch about the end of the world, you know? Some people may think it's the, uh, because of a war. Some people may think that the end of the world will be a plague or some kind of cosmic disruption or an alien invasion or some kind of rogue weather balloon that comes over our, our airspace. I know how many people are watching the news because of that. But we saw that the end will come when God finally brings judgment upon sin. That's the end of the story. When his wrath comes upon the sin of the world. And I asked why. You know, why the wrath of God upon the sin of the world? And really, if you think about it, it's really God's mercy. Because if God didn't intervene upon sin... I think we would truly see the end of humanity if left unchecked. If left with living however we want or desire, we would see the end of humanity as we know it. But the end of the world, as we know, will happen when it's on God's watch and his determination when it is time. But we'll see also that certain events will take place, right? For those who reject the gospel of Christ, this is not good news, right? I don't know everybody here. If Christ is not your Savior and Lord, this message may be a little unsettling to think about how the world may end or the end of our story. And so the things that we may talk about in the next couple weeks, it may not seem like good news, But for those who are in Christ, who have Christ in your life, he is your Savior and Lord, this is great news. The end of the story is great news. I don't know how many of you watched a movie, and it built up and built up. You wanted a good ending, and it was a terrible ending. It was like there's nothing redeeming about the story. It just ended, and it's like, ugh. 
That wasn't a good ending. There is an ending for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a beauty that we will have and experience and see that this current life cannot compare. I don't know about you guys, but rain that we've had, isn't it wonderful when you drive on the freeways, you see how green some of the hills are? Right where we live, we go down on the four, up and down the four or five, you look through the Sepulveda Pass and the hills, it's all green. Like the rest of the year, it's all brown. And it's so wonderful to see, wow, we're reminded how green California can look, right? I love being able to see untouched nature in creation. How beautiful it is. Well, what we have to look forward to will exceed beyond any current beauty that we see on earth today. So there's something to look forward to as believers in Christ. As we look into Mark chapter 13, I've mentioned before, this is a challenging set of messages for me to prepare for because there's a lot of different interpretations about Mark 13 the end times, eschatology, all sorts of things we've been looking at on Friday night and, and Sunday mornings. So how do you approach knowing that there's different viewpoints about Christ's return, things to come? And I mentioned last week, here's some three things that we're going to approach this with, right? And there's differing opinions and, and, and interpretations about the end times, and those differing opinions seem to center around these three things. Will there be a time of tribulation, no, great tribulation as described in Revelation? Okay, so when we talk about eschatology, the differing opinions about the end times of Christ's return, what are some of the differences? A lot of it centers around, will there be a time of great tribulation as described in Revelation? Will there, will there be a literal millennial reign of Jesus on earth? So Jesus comes to earth and he'll reign on earth for a thousand years and we'll, there'll be life and, and he'll reign over the nations. Is there going to be a literal thousand year reign and then thirdly when will the rapture of the church take place when will jesus take the church or the believers up to him will it be before tribulation after tribulation in the middle of tribulation will that happen at all so those three things these issues seem to be at the center of a lot of the different different interpretations and discussions so i will say this i don't seek to answer all your questions in these sermons. I may not. I probably will not. But what I want us to do, and I've been trying to do this on Sunday mornings, is teach us how to approach Scripture, to understand Scripture, how to study Scripture, to know what we need to be certain of, know what we think we can know, and to be okay with some mystery that we may not know at least not know yet. So one of the things we've been trying to look at as we approach chapter 13, what does Jesus proclaim will take place? What does he say will take place? What are the signs that we're to look for? And how should we respond to what will happen? So those are the three things that we can be certain of when we approach this chapter. We want to know what does Jesus say is certainly is going to happen? What are the signs? What are the things we're to look for? And how are, to we, how are we to respond to what we're seeing or what, we, what Jesus is talking about? Okay? So the passages we'll look at, what we can, be, what we can understand definitively, what we can assume 
with some certainty and what we can agree to disagree on. Because I'm going to say that. After we move on to chapter 14, there's probably going to be some things, questions that we and we may differ on. And I explained this Friday night, and I think I explained some of it on Sunday, is that this is one, there are some issues when it talks about eschatology that a lot of believers are divided upon. It becomes very divisive, and it, and it causes problems, and it leads to judgmental statements that is not necessary. If you believe certain aspect of eschatology from somebody else, a lot of times there's conclusion that, well, you're not as, you don't have as much faith, or you may not be saved, or there's, there's a lot of those judgment issues. So we want to make sure that, okay, we don't get to that point and that place and hold on to what we need to be certain of. We can be, believe on things that we can fairly be certain of or strongly believe, and there can be some things that we can agree to disagree on. Okay, anyways, if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter uh, 13 of Mark. Mark chapter 13. If you remember, give you a little bit of a context, I mentioned Matthew's account in Matthew 24, right? If you remember, the disciples and Jesus were leaving the temple, and the temple that Herod had built was just this enormous, just grand splendor of a, of a building, that was built with these huge stones. And it was a marvel. A lot of people regarded it as like an eighth wonder of the world at the time. And so the disciples were looking at the, the building of the temple, not just the temple building itself, but the surrounding perimeter of the surrounded the temple. The buildings, huge stones. <clears throat> and they're saying, Jesus, look at all these huge stones. The temple was built, and they were marveling at it. And Jesus said to him very, a very startling, surprising declaration. And he said, not one of these stones will be left on its own. In other words, he said it was going to be destroyed. And then we saw in the next scene, the disciples were Jesus on the Mount of Olives and able to look out over to the temple. And Andrew and Peter, James and John asked Jesus a very good question. I'm very thankful they asked this question, right? I don't know if you ever had that. Someone says something very, like, surprising, and you're too afraid to ask the logical question. Well, they asked Jesus the question, when will these things be? And what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Right, a very good question. Jesus makes this prediction, this prophecy that what's going to happen, and he asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And as we look at Jesus' response, I want us to keep two perspectives in mind. What were the disciples supposed to understand, right? Because Jesus is talking to them. What were they to understand? And then also, what are we to understand in Jesus' response? Because one of the answers to those questions that the disciples had was very relevant to their time. In their generation, the temple indeed was destroyed. Right? So it was very relevant to the time. But Jesus' response also, we see from the church 2,000 years later, is also very relevant. Right? So there's two kind of perspectives to keep in mind in Jesus' response to the disciples' questions. What were they to understand at the time? And also, what can we understand from Jesus' response? 
Verse 5. We'll pick it up in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and he will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So again, what is certain, what is certain of what Jesus says, we do know for certain that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Titus, a Roman general, destroyed the temple and not just messed it up. Where literally the stones are not found on place or another. If you go to the Temple Mount today, the Wailing Wall that we know of, that's not the Temple Wall. Right? I used to know, I used to think that. That was my impression, right? That was the wall of the temple. That's not. That's the bordering of the area of where the temple. There's actually, they don't really know where the actual, with certainty, where the temple was, because it was destroyed so we know the area the potential area but because there's no stone left upon the other so it's amazing how remarkable jesus statement actually ended up coming true it indeed took place but what can we understand definitively and one of the things we can see definitively in what jesus says he says there will be a rise of deception and false teaching. Jesus says in verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Now, however you slot, verse goes on between verses 5 and 20, the events that Jesus describes, however you describe it, it takes, you know, you lay it out and try to make sense of what takes place. What we see from verses 5 and 20, Jesus bookends, bookends those verses with a warning against deception. Verse 21, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he's there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now take a moment to appreciate Jesus' startling declaration here. What Jesus is saying. Jesus declares that there will be great deception false reports in his name claiming to be him, claiming to be the Messiah. Now, why is that starting? Why is that such an interesting declaration? Think about it. Is there anyone in human history who's been subject of imposters more than Jesus? Has there been any more claims of being somebody more than Jesus. I don't recall any claims of Muhammad. Not many, if at all, claims of being the Buddha. Well, I guess there may be some here and there. Joseph Smith. No other religious leader is the subject of false claims as Jesus. Yet to this day, To this very day, we still have people claiming to be Jesus. 
claiming to be the Messiah. I think I've told you the story when I was a kid, we were at church, and, and we, we grew up at church in, in, in downtown L.A., Koreatown, L.A., and I remember one day after church, all of us kids were playing around while the parents are doing stuff. I don't know what they were doing, but they were doing stuff, and all those kids are playing around. Parking lots and grounds and stuff like that. Don't play in the parking lots here, okay? But I remember a time this some guy off the street came out saying he was Jesus. White, bearded, brown hair, kind of long hair, someone straight out of the 70s, claiming to be Jesus, talking to the kids. And I thought, that is weird. That is not Jesus, right? But throughout history, there have been people claiming to be Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah. If Jesus was a fraud, if he was a fraud, he was not who he said he was, and he didn't do what he said he, what the Bible says he did, I can't imagine a rise in claims to be the next Jesus. Think about that. If Jesus was a fraud, wasn't who he said he was. He wasn't who the disciples said he was. He did not do what the disciples claimed he did. I can't imagine anyone wanting to be Jesus himself or to be an imposter. We have to understand there's a spiritual deception involved in all these things, in all these claims to be the Jesus, to be the next Messiah. There is a spiritual deception going on, and Jesus is warning This is what you need to be watching out for. There will be many coming, claiming to be in my name, performing these wonders. The second thing Jesus says, there will be a rise of deception and false teaching. Also, he mentions global conflict and natural disasters will occur. Verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now with today's media coverage, right? We hear instantly about earthquakes. When those, was it a week ago? On the west side over here, we had a, a, a little tremor at 2 o'clock in the morning. All right, it woke me up a little bit. I, I wrote it out. I said, okay, I'm a veteran earthquake survivor. When I say survivor, you know what I mean. And I felt it, assessed it, mm, no big deal. But I went on my phone, checked my app, and I, I followed this account, and it monitors earthquake. I want to say, you know, how close was it? Estimated like a 4.0. No big deal, right? It wasn't tremor. Not a big deal. But in today's media, we can watch instantly natural disaster coverage. Hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, all these kind of things. We're up to, up to the minute, right? So what's always on our minds, global conflicts. We can see immediate reports and oftentimes coverage on the ground level. And if you get too caught up in it, it can really stress you out. All the media coverage of all these things ta- taking place. Spy balloons flying over, all right, right now it's over Kansas. Now it's over South Carolina. You know, all those kind of things. But Jesus is saying, don't be frightened. These things must take place. This is nothing new. All these things that we have reports of has happened. Have you noticed the last like heat 
we've had or natural disaster we've had, right? They'll say, it is the hottest it's been here since 1852, 1975. You know what that means? Brace yourself. This is not the first time it was that hot, right? It's happened. Have you noticed we, when those kind of things happen, what they're saying is that, look, these things will take place. These things will happen. It is not the sign yet. See, a lot of us get consumed that it's going to be a big earthquake, right? If we live in San Fernando Valley or Southern California, the big one is going to come. I've heard that all my life. I was born just after the Silmar quake. So we heard all my life, the big one, the next big one is coming. Next big one's coming. Next big one's coming. And so we've conditioned ourselves to think that the next world war, the next natural disaster, all the climate change, all this stuff, that's going to be the end of humanity. But Jesus says, don't be frightened. Those things will take place. It's not yet the end. Remember Y2K? That is not, hasn't been yet. The rapture hasn't happened yet, right? I don't think so, right? So Jesus warns, these things will take place. There will be a rise of deception and false teaching. There will be rumors of wars, global conflict, and natural disasters. Those things will occur. It's not yet the end. Verse 9. What does Jesus talk about? He says there will be persecution because of the name of Jesus. Now again, here's a startling declaration by Jesus. There will be persecution. You will be persecuted for his name. And ever since the beginning of the church, we have seen Christians be brutally persecuted. It continues, <coughs> excuse me, today. Verse 9. Let me see. Am I, am I on it right? Okay, verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, excuse me, hold on a second. Do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. <clears throat> For it is not you who speak, <coughs> but it is of the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end he shall be saved. <clears throat> Again, think about what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> if Jesus was a fraud, he wasn't who he said he was, he wasn't what the disciples claimed to be, and he's not what the Bible says he was. If he did not truly resurrect from the dead, 
Why would the disciples feel compelled to even fulfill these words of Jesus? I can't imagine the disciples or anyone else would be motivated to share what Jesus is saying if he did not resurrect. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, I can't imagine, right? This is, a, this is a private conversation Jesus has with the disciples. There's no reason for them to make this a report of what Jesus said if he did not resurrect. And I can't imagine being willing to lay down my life that I know is a lie, that doesn't need to be fulfilled, Right? Yet we know these scenarios that Jesus warns them about certainly came true in their lifetime. And it's been proven true today. You can read the horrific stories of brutal persecution, betrayal, and genocide. Not only from the early church, but what goes on today around the world. Jesus' words have been proven true. The disciples experienced it. And we've seen it throughout church history. This next one that Jesus says is something that I believe is definitively certain. Not all Bible-believing Christians agree on this. We could agree or disagree on this. Great tribulation. Verse 14, Jesus goes on and says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, that the reader understand. Sorry, I'm like... <clears throat> running out of breath or something. And let him who is on the housetop not go down or enter in to get anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, <coughs> which God created until now and never shall. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now again, some commentators, scholars, pastors may understand these verses to describe the time of the temple's destruction. Some will say that this part of the passage is describing what happened in the time of the apostles leading up to the destruction of the temple. So many will say that this had already been fulfilled. Others view this as describing future events yet to be fulfilled. I lean more this way, that yes, some of this had taken place, but that it's not irrelevant to the future of the church. That describes also an event that is still to come, is still leading up to Jesus' return. But Jesus declares a time of tribulation unlike anything in all of human history. Now, if you think of all the things that have happened throughout history, this is quite a claim, right? Jesus has used hyperbolic language in, in his teaching before, but this doesn't come across to me as being, using hyperbole or exaggerating. There will be tribulation to such a degree that has never been seen before or repeated. The ongoing brutal persecution of Christians to this day gives me reason that Jesus isn't referring to just something that had already happened. You know what I mean? 
If Jesus was just describing something that would happen in the apostles' lifetime, I don't think he would say, or it would be said to them, that will never be seen, never has happened before, or will be repeated. Because if you look throughout church history, the brutality that the early church experienced is still happening today. Maybe not in our country, but you look around the world. The brutality that these Christians are facing, we can't imagine it. So this tells me that Jesus is describing not just something that happened in their lifetime, but is saying this is something that will continue, will take place in the future. So there's some debate about what the Great Tribulation is and what it describes, right? But there should be no debate among Christians about this next one that we see in this passage, that we should know is definitive. And that is that Jesus is coming back and will gather his people. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Here is the good news. Right? All the previous stuff sounds a little, you know, unsettling. Here is the good news. Jesus will come back physically and visibly on the earth. The first time Jesus came, he came with no acclaim, right? Very humble circumstances. Not a lot of eyes on Jesus. He came as a servant, as that sacrifice for sin for us. But when Jesus returns, he's going to come in awesome power and glory. Jesus' physical and visible return is a foundational tenet in Christianity. That is something that is non-negotiable. There are some things that we can dispute and disagree on, but this is not one that we can dispute and disagree on and claim we're Christians. That Jesus died, he came to earth, he came, perfect sacrifice, he died for sin, he resurrected from the dead, ascended to the Father, and he is coming back. And it will be physical, it will be visible, and he will reign. This is the good news for the believers in Christ. Because not only is he going to come, but there's a promise that he's returning. And those who are in Christ, who are alive, will get caught up, will be gathered to him. And will be with him forever. As Christ was raised, those in Christ will resurrect and be given a new body. The final point of certainty. There will be a rise of deception, false teaching. There will be global conflict and natural disasters, those kind of things, those things will happen. There will be great tribulation. Jesus is coming back and will gather his people. But let's go back a little bit in verse 10. What else does Jesus say will happen? The global preaching of the gospel. Verse 10, And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. This is a big declaration. Do you, do you kind of think about this for a second? 
Jesus declared there will be false Christs. False reports of him will come. Deceiving, deceitful teaching. He declared that his followers will be persecuted and hated, not only for what they believe, but they would also be persecuted and hated by their own family. Not only that, but they will be hated by all. But then he also says, the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Think about this. Even as the disciples endeavored to make this happen, right? If this wasn't true, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, can you explain how the gospel has been preached to all the nations This is a process that is ongoing. If the disciples didn't witness his resurrection, there is nothing in it for them to perpetuate this. And how can Jesus even make this claim that his gospel, we'll talk in a second about what that is, will be preached to all the nations? And if the disciples just decided, well, you know what? We went this far. Let's just include this. I don't know about you, but that's kind of setting yourself up for being a failure. That's a pretty wide claim. That's like overpromising. Have you ever heard that phrase? Overpromise, underdeliver? Or, right? You don't want to overpromise and underdeliver? The disciples, for them to say that Jesus told them that the gospel will be preached to all the nations, that's a startling claim to make. And yet here we are, we have missions reports of the gospel being preached and shared around the world. That's a startling claim. There's nothing in it for the missionaries other than there's something to the gospel message. The gospel message that God is love. And out of his love, he sent his only son to be the sacrifice for sin, the perfect sacrifice to atone for sin that we commit, that we can have forgiveness, so that we can have restored relationship with the holy God and can live with him for all eternity. The gospel message that God loves us so much that he wants us to spend eternity with him. That's an amazing thing to think about. Let me wrap up with this. There's a lot of uncertainty things that we've, we can talk about when it comes to eschatology. There's a lot of details of what Jesus is saying that we don't know about or we can be uncertain about of when something's going to happen. But there is a future hope on the other side of uncertainty. Let me say that again. There is a future hope on the other side of uncertainty. We may not have all the answers. When? How? What are the signs to look for? When is it going to happen after the signs to look for? But look what, Jesus, what John says. The Apostle John of 1 John. He says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has become, 
that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. That's comforting to know. That you could be uncertain about a lot of things in life. None of us have a TV guide about how the rest of our life is going to go. You may think so, right? I don't know if you have an organizer on your phone. You try to calendar things. I remember when I was growing up as a teenager, I got one of those organizers. Did you guys ever get those organizers? It has the calendar stuff. Every year, I'm like, I'm, this is the year. I'm going to chart down all the stuff that I'm going to do on a monthly, daily basis. I'm going to have it all scheduled out. It lasted one month. So I have like a collection of organizers that I don't thoroughly use. We can want to be certain about so many different things, but as you go on in life, you realize there's so little certainty in life. But what the Apostle John wanted to remind us, there is something you can be certain of. You can be certain of eternal life. And that life is in Christ Jesus. The question was asked this week, and we'll end with this, why is this important for us? Why is this important to have? Why is this important to know all these uncertain things that we may not be certain of? It's because there is certain hope on the side of uncertainty. And that future hope has promises that nothing in this world or in this lifetime could ever, ever compare or offer us. Nothing. No beautiful landscape on earth can compare and measure to what God is going to do and give to those who've placed their life and trust in him. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, with all the things that we can be uncertain of and how things play out and the timing of things, what's going to happen, not even just talking about your coming, Lord, but we, we think about our own lives and our own futures and we, we stress out and we wonder what's going to happen, what kind of career we're going to have, what kind of where we're going to live and what we're going to eat and what's our family going to look like and our health and all these things. And Lord, admittedly, it can be overwhelming the amount of uncertainty we have in life. And we may still have questions about your coming and when it's going to happen, the order of events that's going to take place. But Lord, I pray that we don't leave with the uncertainty of where we stand with you. That Lord, we can have certainty in the name of Jesus Christ. We can have the hope of salvation in the name of Jesus. We can have the gift of eternal life through the name of Jesus. And who you are, what you've done for us, and how you've called us to respond. We thank you, Lord, and give you glory.
in Jesus' name. Amen.